This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. Our guest this week is Coco Crum, who um, is an adjunct professor at UC Berkeley. She sits at the intersection of all sorts of things, um, data science, applied math, food, agriculture, um, and has done a lot of interesting work in each of those areas. Welcome, Coco. Thank you, guys. Excited to be here. So you, so you work on um, commercial agriculture and food-related things, right? I spent the last three years working with a few technology companies uh, that are addressing pain points in agriculture and commodities. I'm also separately really interested in food. I cook, I experiment with growing things myself. And through that work and the combination of that work, as well as my background in math and statistics, um, I've become really interested in the disconnect between the way Silicon Valley is approaching solving um, questions or problems in this area and, and my experience talking to farmers, for example, in the Midwest, talking to corn and soybean farmers in Iowa, sugar beet farmers in the Dakotas, rice farmers here in California. Um, and as a result, something I've been spending a lot of time on is a couple of film and writing projects to kind of bridge that hmm. uh, divide. Um, because I think if we're going to start to fund uh, initiatives or build companies around um, helping agriculture get better, it's important to understand how it how it actually works rather than mm -hmm. relying on mythologies about it. So is there a tendency for the, the sort of tech community from the Bay Area, which is all just sitting indoors at computer screens all day, to make assumptions about the needs of, of uh, people who are working in agriculture or working adjacent to agriculture? Yeah. And I'll give you an example. I mean, I think we're all subject to making assumptions about things we don't know about. The, this, was, this was brought home to me at a, a dinner I went to a few months ago that was a, a gathering of quote-unquote innovators and venture capitalists in food and agriculture. And um, at the end of the dinner, somebody posed a question, which is, what is the killer app? What's the one killer app that's going to, you know, solve everything in, mm -hmm. in food and agriculture. And everybody had to go around the table. And, you know, some people said vertical farms. Some people said robots. Uh, some people said marketplaces and platforms. And I just was sitting there kind of, and I'd brought a friend um, who was, who's a farmer out in Brentwood, which is um, towards the Delta. Um, he was the only farmer in the room. And he and I just kind of looked at each other. And, I, you know, I got more and more annoyed as people went around the table and said this, you know, there's the one solution. Um, because I don't think there is one solution. I think this is, you know, we're so primed here for um, quick iteration and uh, products that can be tested very quickly with a large number of people. That's very much not the case with agriculture. Mm -hmm. You think about mm -hmm. timescales there, 
or way it, longer. Yeah, than a funding cycle. Five years to get most crops actually producing from the day you plant them. That's mm -hmm. you know your VCs mm -hmm. would be out of the room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. In a tenth of that time. So, um, so what are the types of things that that people want to get funding to develop? Like what, what's on the table here? There are a lot of things and, and there are a lot of things being funded. And I think as sort of incremental um, innovations, I, I think many of them are, are quite interesting and quite good. So some examples are in, in the realm of precision agriculture. So precision agriculture is taking commodity agriculture, uh, mostly for row crops. Um, so imagine a big Midwestern field and you know, a hundred years ago, you had uh, horses pulling pulling plows, and and now you have these big John Deere tractors that, you know, with one person, a tenth mm -hmm. of the labor, you could cover ten times the the acreage, um, and uh, production per acre that's increased, um, I think, sixfold in the last hundred years, largely due to revolutions in in breeding. Um, so now there's. A lot of these applications that are being funded today are innovating on top of that. So, for example, GPS to guide your tractor, um, your planter, um, so that you're planting seeds in, a, in, in very precise spacing. And then you're applying fertilizer uh, just right where you planted the seed. So you're not broadcasting nitrogen as people did in the past. Um, there's a lot of technologies related to sensors. Um, so from satellite technology to drones, uh, to actual uh, physical sensors, uh, the, the wine industry is using a lot of these um, to um, try to understand the uh, moisture, the sugar content of, of grapes, of the soil. There's also uh, big data companies uh, doing weather analytics, crop growth models to try to um, sell to, to commodity traders, for example, um, to help them understand uh, what, what global yield patterns look like. I see. So it's mostly about the sort of optimization of, of existing large-scale farming. Yes. Uh, so large-scale uh, row crop so grain operations, um, some smaller scale, high value crops. So like this wine. is so this is the connection for your like data science and statistics part of the brain then. Yeah. Because I, like I mean I imagine that that all this new sensor stuff that's happening is is getting a lot more you know large volumes of precise and new types of data that now need to be parsed and figure out something to be done with it right. Right. Correct. And and that's why I was attracted to this area. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's fascinated. I I think what I knew sort of. Intuitively, but it took working um, in this area to to really learn it is just how difficult measurement and feedback loops and interactions and thus you know the data science you're talking about is in this domain um, and in many cases there's this expectation from Silicon Valley that models will work very well in mm -hmm. Earth systems um, because. If you think about, you know, ad auctions or um, social other media data, or social media data, data, other yeah, financial data, um, it, it's possible to to do measurements and thus to uh, build predictive models um, that are just much cleaner than than it is right now in Earth systems. I see. The real world's a messy place. The real world is a messy place. <laughs> So it takes a lot of, is it mostly then data science or, or um, you know, hardware improvement that goes into making the world a cleaner place? 
are an easier place to calculate. Making the world a better place. Making the world a better place. Yeah. It's both. There are people coming at this problem from from different directions. Um, I think the thing I'm most interested in is how the data science and the human behavior interact. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and this gets back to your question about, you know, are we in Silicon Valley misunderstanding or misrepresenting or making assumptions about what farmers want and find useful? And I think uh, we are. Um, so, to me, what's interesting is taking what um, would help a farmer save time mm-hmm. or save money um, and plugging that in with what the models can do and also the limitations of the models. Yeah. So we think of the kinds of technologists who work on this stuff as being like technologists first with a secondary understanding of agriculture. Do you run into a lot of people who are agriculturalists first with a secondary understanding of technology who are kind of approaching it from that background? Yeah, a ton of them. Um, and you guys would too if you if you uh, <laughs> <laughs> if we left, out to see the rabbits. If we left or, this yeah. building, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. mean, the, what's what's really interesting is, um, you know, you go to the I states: Iowa, Indiana, Illinois, and there's a real generational thing there. There's this big generation of baby boomers that are retiring, um, and they're mostly sons, some daughters too, are taking over their operations. And um, their sons and daughters are our ages and um, very technically adept. Um, so I think there are going to be big changes um, in in how agriculture is carried out. The other really big change that has nothing to do with technology, or it has something to do, it has a lot to do with technology, but not with the Silicon Valley funding cycles, is that right now in the U.S., in order to um, stay in business as a farm, you have to farm a lot more acreage. Mm-hmm. And it, you need, and that's largely because of, of capital. You need, um, the margins in agriculture are very thin. You need capital to buy the large trackers that allow you to uh, plant more and get in those very narrow planting windows um, and harvesting windows. What are, the mar- what are the margins like kind of on average for agriculture it really depends if you're growing how large your operation is what, what crop you're growing it depends on the year too mm-hmm. um, what's really interesting to me at least for for grain operations is um, if you look historically the margins that farmers are capturing so, so the price at which they sell their grains the ratio of the price at which they sell their grain to the um, the cost of their inputs, like land mm-hmm. and fertilizer, seed, et cetera, those have remained pretty constant. I mean, there's some there's variance depending on your size, on whether you rent or you own your land, on the crops you're growing, whether you're growing specialty corn, non-GMO soybeans, whatever, um, versus the standard. But the what what does fluctuate is the amount that is captured by the food companies, so the big hmm. CPG companies in between. So, I mean, you probably have noticed you. Food prices are responsive for the consumer to certain shocks. Um, so if there's the egg prices recently went up and we're, we're very cognizant of that. Uh, when the production cost of food goes down, you never see consumer prices go down substantially. Mm-hmm. Um, so when that's happening, it's not the farmer who's capturing that you know extra Mm-hmm. extra cash that's the uh it's the cpg companies mm-hmm. in between mm-hmm. so coco what have you been working on uh recently what what sorts of projects are you are you working on one of the projects is actually it's not related to agriculture but it's about this tendency to want to optimize everything in silicon valley and it's a humorous project my goal is to start a 
discussion or continued discussions that are ongoing about uh, culture and identity here in Silicon Valley. Um, so, and one of the components of that, I think, is recognizing that we're in an industry that's started to mature and this time around it's kind of different in Silicon Valley. I don't know if you guys feel that way, but this there's wealth here that's here to stay in a way that it wasn't with the past booms and busts of San Francisco. And you're speaking as someone who grew up in the Bay Area, right? Yeah, so I, so I, I grew up here and I remember, you know, my I was in high school in the in the um, late 90s, so I remember you know, friends, parents with the Aeron chairs in the back of the Volvo um, mm-hmm. as their companies collapsed. And that was kind of the iconic image of that time. And, um, you know, there were a few other, I came back after college, I worked in a startup. Um, I went back to the East Coast for grad school. So I've been back and forth and there were other, you know, cyclical uh, elements. Um, but I think the the sort of iconic image of of this era, our current era in Silicon Valley is, is the cranes that you see in, in mm-hmm. San Francisco and the new condo buildings um, and the new restaurants opening and the neighborhoods developing really, really rapidly. And and I think that's, that's very different. Um, and one of the things I've started to notice is, you know, there are other places that are one-horse towns. You think of New York... You think of Los Angeles or, or D.C. Um, and my sense as an outsider to those places is that they're able to have a sense of humor about themselves in a way that Silicon Valley isn't yet. Hmm. Um, and I think we're, we're growing up and we're becoming, I think it takes a certain amount of self-awareness and the maturity of an industry to, to be able to laugh at oneself. And I think we're, we're just starting to get that there here. Hmm. So you mean uh, DC is able to laugh about government, New York about finance, Los Angeles about industry? What what is it that you think uh, San Francisco lacks in this? It hasn't found yet in the ability to to laugh at itself. Well, I, I watched this. Um, there's a short interview with Michael Lewis, who is the the author of you know various books, Liars Poker, Moneyball, mm-hmm. um, and he wrote one book. Uh, the new new thing on Silicon Valley, which is about uh, Jim Clark, who's the founder of Silicon Graphics. And in this interview, Michael Lewis said that this was the single hardest book for him to write um, because it's very hard to describe Silicon Valley with any warmth. Mm -hmm. Um, And he said, I think his quote was, it's just a bunch of autistic people wandering around. Hmm. Um, That's a bit condescending, don't you think? Well, maybe. it could also be seen as a compliment, right? Yeah. As artistic, autistic people are, yeah. are geniuses, I think, right? I mean, people yeah. people say much uh, meaner things about finance uh, yeah, people no, in New York. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's a bunch of psychopaths exactly. wandering but around. A bunch of psychopaths wandering <laughs> around, yeah. But when you read books about New York, and when I read books about New York, um, you know, Barbarians at the Gate is this great book about Wall Street in the in the 80s um, and the hostile takeovers, the private equity is just, mm. you know, really taking root then. Um, and the way the characters are built, at least in journalistic description, is is as people with motives, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as people who may be cruel, they may be greedy, um, but they're at least, they're relatable. And... I think that's that's what I took Michael Lewis to be saying about Silicon Valley, um, and that's certainly 
part of what I've I've observed is that there is this save the world cheerfulness here um, and this genuine belief that um, you know your app your app for a dog social network um, is going to improve mm-hmm. quality of life for a large number of people. Um, that it's hard to. It's like how do you how do you empathize with that and how do you mock that right because mm-hmm. it's 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 simple yeah yeah there's a kind of um well i think there's a certain na- naivete in in right please if they print a transcript of this please put the proper diacriticals on top of it yeah exactly <laughs> but um you know there there can be because i mean it's a thing where there's a lot of people who are who are young and have heady ideas and there's kind of a feedback loop of like oh the cult the culture is such that like there is kind of a little bit of an emperor's new clothes thing i mean i mean honestly to be perfectly frank I, I found this a lot at mit as well you know like i actually had a harder time finding people to tell me that i was having a bad idea than to tell me that my idea was good hmm. um because I think everyone kind of assumes a certain skill level and like if you don't get it, maybe there's something wrong with you and you don't want to admit it. And I mean, obviously, there's, there's good things that come out of there too. But like, you know, that coupled with the, the sheer amount of money being thrown around and the speed at which the economy moves, I think can, it seem, you know, can, can create some, some feedback loops which, which emphasize non-desirable traits for, for, for ongoing for ongoing economics, I think. Yeah, I think that's that. I, I yeah. think MIT and Silicon Valley. I'm not the first. To, yeah. We're not the first to point out that we can say that because we went there. Because <laughs> <laughs> we have degrees from there. Yeah, but it's it's the line, right? I mean, like you know, I've I've also been in places where doing anything differently is really extremely frowned upon, just just because we haven't thought about doing it that way before. And so, how do you? Yeah, I mean, how do you not throw the baby out with the bathwater in in both of those situations? I think. What you're saying is, and I agree with, is is there's a, a techno utopianism mm-hmm. in in both places, which is you know creates a lot of good things. Technology does improve yeah. people's lives, um, but you look, you know, and I'm not a historian of this, but um, you look even just casually at um, how people who earned new wealth in different eras, historical eras of great wealth creation, such as our own, um, you know, what they did with that wealth. And what you see to be characteristic of our era is that uh, people who make money on their startups plow it back into their friends' startups. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, increasingly into experiences, whereas in the past there were oh, yeah, universities and, and monuments built and opera houses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting to observe that difference. It went back, the people went back and engaged with the general public rather than just with the industry. Mm-hmm. There's something else that I that I think you hit on earlier that, that I've thought a lot about too, where um, Silicon Valley demands a kind of altruism from the people who operate in it. And, and a kind of vision that's grander than just commercial success. So if you uh, come up with, you know, a, a new kind of like home automation hub, it has to be a home automation hub that will revolutionize the world by bringing people closer together with the people who care about them. It can't just be like a home automation hub that's easier to use than ones before it and that will be very commercially successful. It has to like have that um, that that social mission to it and people expect it and people speak in those terms instead of commercial terms sometimes. And that creates kind of an, an insincere voice. That's right. For, um, you know, this is, the, this is the web framework for 
cross-browser compatibility testing that's going to change the world. And it's like, yeah, no, you can just say that you've created a web framework for cross-browser compatibility testing yeah. and we'll that's all fine. enjoy using it. Yeah. And I think if you look at, um, you know, how the finance industry in New York or advertising industry in New York operate, they would just say, eh, we're going to make some money on this. It's a new product. And just and evaluate okay. it on that basis. Well, and yeah, I mean, and also in San Francisco, to play the other side of the card in San Francisco, wanting to make money on something is 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 extremely frowned upon. I think. Yeah, and I think people start to believe their own stories, and 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 some people, many people, I would argue, are actually come here because they have those genuine motivations. Oh yeah, um, I mean, I'm not saying that there's. And, but I think there's a disconnect in you know how the the game actually works and the mythologies that we've created around it. And until we acknowledge that, we're letting the, this power shift happen um, towards the people with capital. Um, and there's a really interesting essay um, published a few years ago by uh, Venkatesh Rao. Who, he talks about this, you know, that we haven't yet admitted it because we have this techno-utopian mythology, but... Um, in fact, the professions that that make up Silicon Valley, the the technical and the business, entrepreneurial professions, they're becoming increasingly commoditized. Um, you know, so where does more than half of the Harvard Business School MBA graduating class, what industry do they want to work in? Technology. Technology. And, and there's that famous quote that when more than 40% of the HBS graduating class um, goes into a sector, it's due for a a crash in the next mm -hmm. five years or mm -hmm. whatever. Um, so, and, and then you look at technologists and, you know, they're in increasingly bec becoming very well paid, but um, ultimately interchangeable um, pieces of, of large technology companies, unless you're, you know, in the top 1% of um, Programmers, a 10x programmer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's the thing, you know, we talk about a lot about um, the, the, the evils of, of speculation instead of creating solid products or whatever. And I think that I think that that possible, I don't know, this, this is an idea I've been turning around in my head for just the past couple of days, so I don't know how correct it is, but we can at least talk about it. But, you know, the same idea that people talk about speculation on Wall Street not being a value add to, to stuff. I mean, I, you know, I, I generally learn a bit, lean a bit on the economic conservative side and I see the value in like markets and stuff but like I do agree that like if you're making money on making money on making money you know and it, it gets to a point where it's turtles all the way down and no value is really being added um, I see the same kind of dangers happening with some of the startups that we like to make make fun about here you know it's like people who are you know, like, like when you start chasing a trend just because that's the trend and you saw that it was on the cover of the International Business Times review this month that it was going to be a big new trend um, and so you decide to put all your eggs in that basket without actually considering to yourself, is this actually a good idea? Or like, do I actually like this? Or is this a product that I would actually use? Or, you know, just, just, it just seems like it's focusing on the wrong part. And I had, a, I had a professor in undergrad who had a set of 10 rules that I really liked. And, and one of the, you know, kind of one of those like pithy 10 rules for living that gets printed on a t-shirt that it gives you if you score a top score in his class, who was a media studies professor. And one of them was, uh, to a difference to be a difference has to make a difference. Hmm. And, that's 
that's kind of a litmus test that I use a lot when I'm deciding how cynical I should be with in, someone. <laughs> in order to be a difference, a difference has to make a difference. A difference, comma, to be a difference, comma, has to make a difference. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I think that's a good, that's a good litmus test, right? I mean, is it actually going to make a difference? I mean, if you have Uber for dogs, what kind of a difference is that going to make? I mean, yeah. it makes your life more comfortable, makes your like friend's life more comfortable, like compare that to other things you could be doing. I mean, it's, it's related to what we were talking about before with agriculture. I think you need a certain amount of speculation is incredibly productive for innovation and for societies. Mm -hmm. And you look historically in agriculture, for example, the setting up uh, commodity futures markets um, allowed liquidity and a smoothing of um, farmers' incomes in, in the short term, right? So you didn't have to sell all your grain mm -hmm. when there was a glut at harvest and the prices were low, you could yeah. um, use markets to um, smooth those effects. And just as in here, there's you know a certain amount of speculation and um, excess actually allows for the really innovative ideas to, to pop up. Um, but oftentimes as industries mature, you see what was, um, you know, initially was scaffolding. So like the, the futures markets were the scaffolding that really helped um, that sector develop. Um, that scaffolding can become a crutch as, it, as the industry grows old and increasingly relies on it or is fooled by. Yeah. Like when do you take the training wheels off? Mm -hmm. So in to reflect uh, some of what you see as being wrong with Silicon Valley culture, you're working on this project that you started to tell us about a moment ago. Tell us about the project. Right. So the Silicon Valley Poetry Magnets, it's actually a project I started about a year ago. I had a set of, um, if you remember the refrigerator poetry that was popular, mm -hmm. what, a decade ago, um, where you have various words that you recombine on your fridge into poems. I made a set of those and I had a whole run manufactured uh, with Silicon Valley buzzwords. So the mm -hmm. um, hottest... Uh, Buzzwords harvested straight from entrepreneurs in, in Menlo Park. Um, uh, for instance, like... Freshest buzzwords. Le freshest. Leverage. Uh, cloud. Service. Platform. Platform. Social. Local. JavaScript. S secret rules for strategic funding and a sweet exit. I'm, I'm looking at your Kickstarter. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. So I did a Kickstarter with this. And, and, you know, they always say in Silicon Valley, solve your own problems. So I was solving my own problem, which was I wasn't uh, sufficiently entertained by Silicon Valley. And I, didn't I was not sufficiently entertained. <laughs> I didn't see enough people making fun of it. Um, it actually started as I was, you know, texting a few of these poetic comp compositions involving techno unicorns uh, to friends. And, um, and then I, you know, thought, what if I could, you know, recombine these in, in real life, the Internet of Things. And so the Magnet Kit was born. Um, and I launched and funded that Kickstarter um, through a, a party for some supporters where we composed poems over dinner. And I'm now revisiting the project with a version two, which is an online um, app. An app. An app. Um, <laughs> I'm smirking. Is, is, is app one of the <laughs> magnets also? It is. Okay. So, so this app, it's going to um, uh, digitize one of the features of the original magnets, which is allowing you um, in real time to recombine on any platform, any mobile platform, um, 
various words uh, to come up with a new buzz phrase that, um, you know, one of the uh, biggest use cases of the magnets was actually to come up with uh, great descriptions of companies or budding companies. So if you don't have time to think about what your company is actually doing, you can um, simply combine popular words that have been funded before uh, and come up with your elevator pitch. So so we're allowing people to do that um, on their phones. And, and the second part is a translation. Um, so this is an algorithmic, an algomagical uh, mm -hmm. translation where you could input any phrase that you might read in the regular news and it'll translate it into Silicon Valley speak. So for example, I took a couple of uh, recent USA Today headlines uh, about a week ago. So Bernie Sanders wins Alaska, becomes vintage programmer, closes C round for B2C payment platform. <laughs> And Pope denounces terrorism in Easter Mass amid tight security becomes invite-only white hat hackathon disrupts Gov 2.0 hackers. <laughs> so things like that. Awesome. So 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 white that hat, any any white hat hacker. It's a big white hat. It is a big white. It's a big hat. one. Yeah, the Pope does a big white hat. <laughs> is that yeah? Um, so so this this allows anyone to live as though uh, he or she is in a pitch meeting at. And reason Horowitz. Correct, and the as if the only uh, thing available for them to read is the TechCrunch blog. Yeah, has Silicon Valley been able to laugh at itself long enough to support the Kickstarter? Yeah, so the Kickstarter was funded about a, a year ago, oh, and okay. um, I just want them laughing a little more and a little harder this <laughs> yeah. this time around. <laughs> cool, cool. So our next segment is Click Spiral. This is where uh, we talk about different things that have been absorbing us on the internet, things that have been filling our browser tabs and our minds and our hours um, on Wikipedia or, or elsewhere on the web. And um, if you, the listener, would like to send in something to absorb David and me and our other listeners for, for much too long, you can email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. And we'll take a look at what it is. We'll sink a few hours into it. And um, we'll, we'll mention it on a future episode of the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. Ironically, now when I waste time on the internet, it's part of my job. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to have like a secondary click spiral. A, That's what Google you doc. use to procrastinate on finding I have a Google Doc spirals. and I find my, after I found myself having procrastinated for an hour and a half or so, I just open the Google Doc and add the link and I'm like... Actually, I have been working for the time past well hour. Spent. <laughs> time well spent. So Good if people job, write self. in, yeah. they'll actually be helping you exactly. do your job. Exactly. exactly. They'll Everybody be providing wins. a distraction, but it's good. Yeah. So this is, how we, um, this is how we monetize procrastination. Procrastination is a service. Yeah. So, uh, David, what... Pass. <laughs> <laughs> so, David, what, what uh, comes off of your Google Doc of procrastination my, my this week? My Google Doc of, of tr interesting things... I was reading the other day about the, have you heard of the, the train crash in Crush, Texas in 1896? No. So we were talking uh, the other day about what did people do before, you know, they could, didn't have to leave their houses to be entertained by computers and television. And um, there was a publicity stunt or, organized in 1896 by this man called William George Crush, um, who worked at the Missouri-Kansas-Texas Railroad, popularly known as the Katy. I'm paraphrasing the Wikipedia page right now. Um, and he got the great idea of having a train wreck for the public to enjoy. Um, and they set up a temporary, like a small little area outside of what's now West 
Tex- West, comma, Texas. It's where you go to get really good kolaches if you live in Central Texas. What's a kolache? Kolache, it's like, uh, I, I'm sure they're from more places than Czechoslovakia, but but it's, there's a big there's a big Czech uh, community in West, comma, Texas. And it's basically like uh, that that culture's version of like bread with meat inside of it or like mm. bread with like jam inside it's like a little like danish kind of roll thing that has a thing it's really good so I, I went to school in waco at baylor and so we'd go drive 15 minutes out to west and get west comma texas and get some and get kolaches <laughs> it was really good is um, west comma texas in west texas no it's actually kind of more in like eastern central it's like near near Waco. you know like the you know like the stars at night are, are big and bright yeah it's near there <laughs> That's um, people should people yeah. should finish um uh, settling their states before they start naming towns after locations in the states. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or countries, as well, the case Texas may be. Texas is so big, you may not know which yeah. part of it you're yeah. in. You, you may not know. So, so anyway, so this guy, so they basically had forty thousand people show up, making the new town of Crush, Texas, temporarily the second largest city in the state. And they literally just built a special um, train track, and ran the cars ran the trains towards each other at at 45 miles per hour and had them run into each other what and unexpectedly the boilers exploded and killed like two or three people and the guy taking the taking pictures of it like lost an eye because of all the it sounds like really gnarly Um, wow but it turned into a huge disaster so was this the 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 first essentially monster truck rally (laughs) i hadn't thought about it like that but i I suppose so yeah sounds like those elementary school um physics problems yeah. where you know two trains are approaching yeah, each other exactly. one yeah, at yeah, 45 yeah. miles an hour the yeah. other yeah 60 conservation miles an hour. of momentum yeah. how many people die how when many they, people yeah. die yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. I, I would go watch that i would go watch two trains crash into each other that'd be great apparently uh, also wikipedia notes that scott joplin apparently um may have been near there at that time and wrote a piano piece about it called the great crush collision march and uh, it was copyrighted a month after the event and the piece was notable because it included instructions in the score for how to replicate the sounds of the train's collision through playing techniques, specific notes, and the use of dynamics. Symbols. Symbols. Yeah, I'm thinking just um, taking your entire forearm and, and smacking down on the keys <laughs> yeah. of the piano. Is probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's mine. John? So um, I, I have recently become aware of something that uh, other people have been aware of for, for about two years now which is that Google Maps and Big Maps show you different versions of national boundaries depending on where you are located. So if you visit Google Maps from the US, it shows Kashmir as a a mess of dotted lines, disputed borders between India, Pakistan, and China. If you visit Google Maps from inside India, you just see a big solid boundary showing that Kashmir is entirely inside India. And if you visit it from inside Pakistan, you see a map showing that Kashmir is in Pakistan. Interesting. So I've um, started to look for for other cases like this. Uh, someone underwritten by the Knight Foundation has compiled a bunch of examples of them. Uh, there, are, there are several around China, including, of course, that um, Taiwan doesn't show up labeled as Taiwan if you're in China. Um, on Baidu. And yeah, I'm, you know, uh, yeah, Baidu maps, you know, 
is going to have its own own perspective on this. So are you actually traveling to the countries to find <laughs> these? Uh, <laughs> oh, you're staying inside you and using these staying, oh, staying inside and using the computer. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you asked, Coco. That's uh, that's that brings me to to the next part of the click spiral, which is that I'm building a um, tool that allows you to explore these things by um, tweaking the, the localization parameters on the map. So when you initialize the map, if you don't tell it where the user is explicitly. It'll just guess based on IP address and serve up the appropriate map. But you can override this by saying, load the map, localized for India, load it localized for Pakistan or whatever. And then the challenge comes in, in having two maps on the same page or four maps on the same page that are localized to different places. And um, that's not something that these APIs are built to support. So I'm learning all about cross-site scripting and iframes and things like that, that uh, I used to have to worry about occasionally when I developed a lot of interactive graphics in my previous job, and which I had uh, uh, blissfully forgotten about. Seems like it would be more fun to travel there. And <laughs> It would be, it would be. Someone pointed out that even if you're looking at Google Maps from inside India, and uh, you see the, you know, the border as a solid, robust, incontrovertible line and that, and that Kashmir is definitely inside India. If you ask for travel directions between two places in some of the, the disputed territory, um, it recognizes that you can't actually like pass through these dotted lines. And so it'll give you driving directions that go all around. over the place and, and around. Yeah. So there are like little hints. It's a little bit like observing a black hole. I think if you're, if you're inside India, you have to like figure out, um, what what the signals so are you use, use indirect measurement. actually where it is yeah exactly it turns out that it's illegal to publish a map in india showing that kashmir is not completely part of india and i think the same is true in pakistan so it's it's this interesting sort of example of like um geopolitical hedging as a service and not only is this available to uh you know google and microsoft who are serving the maps but also of course these maps are used by developers and um I went to a, a conference last week where someone from Microsoft very happily explained to me that um, this meant that you could develop any application on top of Bing Maps and uh, rest easy knowing that Bing would automatically handle this delicate geopolitical issue for you without any input from you so that your app wouldn't get called out by the authorities in, in uh, some authoritarian for place and, for being illegal because it acknowledges uh, the existence of Israel or because it um, labels the, uh, the Persian Gulf, the Arabian Gulf, or, or vice versa. So, uh, Coco, what's your click spiral? Oh, geez. I mean, I, I feel like I'm uh, ill-prepared for this because I, I didn't see it coming. So I, mine are actually, uh, unlike your beautifully curated click spirals, they're actually things I've been wasting time on. Oh, okay. No, um, that's, that's what these actually <laughs> found are. Found out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm finally watching the Silicon Valley HBO show. Okay. Um, I'm terrible at watching television of every ki any kind, um, and I didn't grow up watching a lot of TV, so I have a very low tolerance such that when I do get introduced to a show and start watching it, I can't stop. Mm -hmm. um, so I essentially have binged on the two seasons that are out already these past few weeks, um, and I found it pretty hilarious. Um, it's a good show. What surprised me, though, is that they're not. Um, uh, there's more humanity and more motivation in uh, the characters than I expected. I sort of expected mm. naively them to be sort of caricatures, mm -hmm. um, 
So you've got the, you know, autistic programmer and the edgy female VC and mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. Um, selfish billionaire, whatever. Um, but there, there's actually a, a lot more nuance than yeah. than I had thought. Mm-hmm. And they're all acting out of some sort of perhaps authentic passion. It's not just, um, yeah, they're, they're not just kind of doing it out of the worst motivations, which would be well, some of the humor comes from some of the humor comes from, you know, when they when they run into people who are not acting out of genuine motivation as well. And like, like explores the fine line between like, having a crazy idea that's like something that you really care about and having a crazy idea just for the sake of having a crazy idea versus the sake of like pursuing a crazy idea just because you're a crazy person. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, so they say about um, sarcasm being the, the highest form of humor, right? Because it requires intimate knowledge of the subject that, that, you're, that you're making fun of. And then you have to build jokes on top of that and all of that has to work together really well. Um, and if it comes out right, then it's then it's hilarious, and I, I I I feel that way when I watch that television show. Yeah, and it's not it's it's exactly that it's a parody, so it's not mm-hmm. ad hominem. Um, and and I just watched the one I watched the second season first for some reason, but I just watched the uh, Tech Crunch, the finale uh-huh. of the first season. Um, and you know, there's a scene with all the booths and these blonde girls with the cupcake app and. Um, mm-hmm you know, the tech bloggers walking around. And um, it, what struck me is that they're all, you know, there's this collective delusion here that we've created such that everybody believes their social, local, whatever app is saving the world. And I, mm-hmm. I, none of none of it is dis- disingenuous. Um, so when you look at these people all together, um, there's something, it's not only a parody, but there's something very um, endearing about it, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's... Um it's almost childlike. It's like in, in terms of the, like the, the narrow scope of what you're doing and the earnestness with which you believe in it. Right. There's the, the, the montage of people saying like, we're changing the world with modestly priced credit card transaction processing systems. You know, we're changing the world with taking out futures on sesame seeds. Yeah. 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 Oh, that I liked though. Cause yeah. I'm into agriculture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I really like that these scene. Seeds? <clears throat> yeah. Awesome. Did you find that uh, two seasons of it is overwhelming? Like since you're since you're also in it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I'm far enough from that um, satirized world right now. Mm-hmm. Um, both because I'm, you know, I'm not working on a startup in a garage. Um, mm-hmm. Also, the gender. I mean, they're all dudes mm-hmm. as are mm-hmm. most people, but you don't, you know, there's not a character I um, relate to very strongly. So it's not. Uh, it's mostly just funny. Okay. Okay. Yeah. They they hired a female developer in season two. It's funny. They did. Yeah. That they was funny. Explore some of the issues surrounding that. Yeah. You guys should be friends. Exactly. <laughs> 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 well, Jared is a great character. <laughs> well, this has been a click spiral, and if you, the listener, have a click spiral that you would like to send in, just email us at hardware at o'reilly dot com, and we'll talk about it on a future episode of the podcast. I think that's about all we have time for. I think that's a good place to draw our conversation to a close. So Coco, if people want to find you in the internet, where do they look? So you could find out more about the magnets at siliconvalleymagnets.com. And my site is cocofolio.com. Cocofolio? As in the, 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 the folio of Coco. That's right. Excellent. That is correct. Thank you so much for stopping by, Coco. It's been great to talk. Thanks, guys. This is fun. 
For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner. <laughs>